We are continuing our series, Cultural Counterfeits, in which we're looking at a few of the counterfeit or deceptive messages that we're inundated with in culture today. Today's message is entitled, A Beautiful Design. Last week, I spoke about humanity and what it is to be made in the image of God. That message laid the foundation for what we're going to be talking about this morning. And so, uh, if you haven't had the chance to hear that, if you weren't here last week, um, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Um, not that it's, you know, you're not going to be lost hearing today's message if you haven't heard it, uh, but I believe it does lay a good foundation for what we're talking about this morning. And I believe that to have a scripturally shaped view on identity, gender, and sexuality, we need the framework of what it is to be human, what God's purpose for our humanity is, and why we have these bodies. And so I encourage you to go check that out if you haven't uh, heard that yet. So we are going to look at counterfeit messages surrounding identity, gender, and sexuality. And just as I did last week, we'll look at what the scripture says, and we'll look at what the gospel says. How we talk about these things matters. And so we should seek to understand and engage in these topics with humility. Let us remember that we're not just talking about issues. We're talking about people, and they are precious people created by a good and loving God. And so as we begin, let's pray. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come to you as people who have been redeemed. As the scripture says, we were lost and dead in our sin, but you've redeemed us. You've taken us out of darkness into marvelous light. I ask that you would give us a humble heart as we receive from you this morning, Lord, uh, give us ears to hear what you would say and help us to respond in such a way that honors you, brings glory to you, and ultimately extends your kingdom further. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I shared about two counterfeit messages, two philosophies really that we see in culture today. Personal autonomy, the idea that one can make decisions and pursue actions for oneself without regard for any moral content. And as well, we looked at dualism and how it separates the soul and the body and treats them as uh, two distinct and separate things. And it leads to the idea that the soul is the real you while the body uh, is irrelevant to who you are. These intertwine in forming the modern notion of one's self. But there's another piece of the puzzle, another counterfeit message, the philosophy of authenticity. This modern philosophy of self that we've been kind of looking at over these last couple of weeks embraces autonomy, dualism, and authenticity. And the reality is much, much more than just those three things. But uh, we don't have 18 hours uh, today to discuss all that. Uh, but there are wonderful resources that you can check out to find out more about those things. And if you're wondering about some good books, I can make some suggestions. The Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor describes Western thinking as the age of authenticity. He describes authenticity this way. It's the understanding of life which emerges with the romantic expressivism of the late 18th century that each one of us has his or her own way of realizing our humanity and that it is important to find and live out one's own as against surrendering to conformity with a model imposed on us from outside by society or the previous generation or religious or political authority. 
If you want that quote verbatim, you can come find me afterwards. Um, let's sum it up this way. It's simply nonconformity. It is the rejection of outside forces telling you how you should live or constraining you in any way. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is nothing new under the sun. And so these are not new messages. These are not new philosophies, even though every now and then they get wrapped up in different ways. These are not new sins. Though perhaps we see these things that we're going to talk about today in greater ways and with greater access. The philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau lived in the 1700s, and he was part of what has become known as the Age of Enlightenment. According to Rousseau, authenticity is derived from the natural self. In other words, your authentic self is discovered inside of you, from your feelings of who you are. You hear this echoed in the words of Caitlin, formerly Bruce Jenner, who identifies as a transgender woman, meaning someone born a male, who now identifies and lives as a woman. Jenner tweeted, I'm so happy after such a long struggle to be living my true self. The modern concept of self teaches that because you have personal autonomy and because your body is not the real you, the path to living as your authentic self is to find a way to express whatever it is that you feel to be the authentic you. And it demands that the deepest longings and desires of the heart have to be granted in order for us to be true to who we really are. And this ideology is pervasive in culture today. All you have to do is turn on the radio to listen to a song singing about be true to yourself, be true to your heart. It's in entertainment, it's in education, it's in politics. And it leads to confusion and bondage. So how are some ways that people are bound by these things? What does this thinking, these philosophies, lead to? Many are bound by the thinking that because sex is an act of the body, it is therefore meaningless. It's just physical. It's just pleasure. It has no significance beyond pleasure. In this, sex is both devalued as merely physical, and it's overvalued, because many pursue it at all costs. Others are bound by the thinking that one's sexuality is the primary identifier of self. This again elevates sex and sexuality beyond its given place, as we'll soon see. And so people believe that their sexual attractions hold ultimate value and determination for their identity. So they identify as gay, lesbian, bisexual, etc., And others struggle with what is now called gender dysphoria, a deep and profound sense of unease people may feel with their own biological sex. Now, as we turn our attention to what the scriptures have to say about these things relating to sexuality and gender and identity, I want us to exercise caution. This is about our posture here. We should be a place of refuge and care and compassion for those who are struggling in sin for those who are bound by sexual brokenness, for those who are confused about their gender, because we were all sinners. Every single one of us in this room. We were all sinners before Christ saved us. We were bound by the brokenness of the fall. We all live even now, every single day, needing God's grace. And so we must be careful not to elevate any specific sin to a position that implies it is beyond redemption somehow. 
if we find in ourselves a particular anger towards those who are bound in that sin, then perhaps that reveals that we don't really know the gospel that we say we believe. It may be that some in this room right now are facing these very struggles or other struggles related to sexuality. What may seem absurd to some may be a daily reality for others. It may be a confusing and daily battle for someone here. Perhaps a struggle that they haven't even felt the freedom to share with other brothers or sisters yet. And so let's treat these things carefully. Let's watch how we talk about those who struggle in these areas or those who are bound in these sins. Let's not be glib. Let's be filled with grace, love, and humility. And so now let's see what the, script, what the scriptures say. Pardon me. Let's turn to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Like we did last week, we're going back to the beginning. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Jumping down to verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Jumping over to Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God created the heavens and the earth. Right off the bat, this rules out a lot of things for us. This rules out the counterfeit messages that we've been looking at about autonomy, about dualism, and about authenticity. John Calvin wrote, speaking um, in his commentary on Isaiah, For he who has a beginning and is not from himself cannot rule by his dominion or govern according to his pleasure what he has not created. As we saw last week, humanity is created and is created with a purpose. In Genesis 1.27, man and woman are made to image God. And so we have a purpose to tend and to develop and to care for God's creation just as he would. To reflect, continue, and to extend God's creative rule throughout the world. And in order to serve as God's image bearers, he creates humanity as male and female. Gender, maleness, and femaleness is biologically and physically grounded. 
It is not determined psychologically and is purposely part of imaging God. God has a beautiful plan for your gender. We live in a world created by a loving God, and that is a liberating reality. Therefore, identity is not something we determine or discover. It's something that he gifts to us. Our identity is given by our creator, and he is a very good God. We are created human beings made in the image of God. However complicated and painful our experience is of these things. And for many, it is a very real painful experience. Our experience doesn't determine what is true. Sin has marred creation. It has stained the beauty and the experience of it. At our group on Tuesday night, when we were talking about imaging God, Tom said, Tom McArdle, our brother, said that sin tells lies about God. But what is true is that God, the creator, has a good, right, and beautiful design and purpose for you and for all his creation. In the garden, sin entered the world when Adam and Eve believed the lie about God that he was in some way withholding good and wonderful things from them. And they ate of the fruit of the tree that they were commanded not to. Today, those who are unbelievers live in bondage under the dominion of sin. And so they continually believe the lies about God. Without the spirit-given new birth, they can't be free of these lies. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, we're told uh, that it's only with spiritual eyes that we can see the truth. And so those who are dead in their sin, this is the Caleb paraphrase of that, those who are dead in their sin just can't see the truth until the Holy Spirit opens their eyes. The reality is that fallen man has been living under the lie of nonconformity much longer uh, than just these last few years. Longer than even the Age of Enlightenment, which I touched on a moment ago with Rousseau. It's been since the moment that Adam ate of the fruit of the garden. In this nonconformity, man has pursued a path for life that seems compassionate and good. It seems right. Proverbs 14.12 says there is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. But God's ways offer life. And in Psalm 16.11, the psalmist writes, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And there's more to say on that passage, and so in a little bit we'll say more about it. From Genesis, we see that man and woman were created with gender. We see that we are created as sexual creatures. Our maleness and femaleness display something about the glory and the purpose of God in this earth. From Genesis 1.28, we see that these differences are for a purpose. We are to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. This is one way that we extend the creative rule of God throughout the world. Through the giving of a part of ourselves, the most intimate part of ourselves, to someone distinctly different than ourselves, a person with a different gender than us, we fill the earth. But sex is for more than just the purposes of reproduction. 
Genesis 2:24 through 25 Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed Sex is about an intimate friendship It's about becoming one flesh So this isn't just a physical union It includes joining one's mind one's emotion and one's entire body But historically, the church has had a lot of confusion over sex throughout the years, even in the early church itself. In both Ephesus and Corinth, there was a lot of misunderstandings about sex. Two ancient cities, both addressed in the New Testament. And certain believers began to practice asceticism, and they were treating sex and sexuality as dirty and bad, so they cut themselves off from it. They were refusing uh, people to get married. And so in 1 Timothy 4, a letter Paul wrote to Timothy while Timothy was at the church in Ephesus, Paul commends both eating of food, thank God, and marriage. (laughs) Thank God. And by extension, in talking about marriage, he is saying that sex is good as well. 1 Timothy 4.4, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. And Paul tells the Corinthians not to withhold sex from their spouses, unless by agreement, and only then for a short time. So sex is to be mutually given. It's not to be ruled over by a domineering spouse. It's not to be used abusively. And sex is also given as a good gift for our enjoyment. God's structure for sex is in marriage between one man and one woman. This covenant of marriage is a covenant of trust. And it's trust that is sealed by a man and a woman giving themselves to each other in a very intimate way. And so God's purpose for sex is for procreation. It's for our enjoyment and the proper structure for love between a man and a woman. Two distinctly different genders. Gender, sexuality, and sex itself are gifts from God, and we receive them trusting in God's goodness and his ways. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. We need a star to guide us through the night sky like sailors of old, and there is no greater guide than our God himself who does not change. Scripture gives us an understanding of gender, sexuality, and the place of sex, but there will always be questions relating to these topics. As I said last week, don't have time to answer every question, so I would invite you, if you do have questions, come talk to me, come talk to Mike, Jesse, Randy, Nate, whoever, deacons, whoever. Let's just talk afterwards. We'll figure out a way to do it. But I want to address a few questions that I think often rise to the top. First, what if I'm single? Do I have to be sexually fulfilled or in a one union, um, a one flesh union to be fully human? In other words, do I need to be married to be complete? The answer to that is a resounding no. Sexual fulfillment, though a good gift, is not at the core of what it means to be human. Quoting Sam Albury. Jesus is the most fully human and complete person who ever lived, and yet he was celibate. 
the moment we say that you have to be sexually fulfilled or romantically fulfilled or married in order to be a full human being, we are saying Jesus wasn't a full human being. Our identity is not found in our sexuality. It's not found in our experience of sex. Our identity is not found in marriage. But it is in who God has made us to be. And perhaps you're single and you want to be married. You want that union. You want to experience sex. Those are good things. But they're not ultimate things. And so I simply encourage you to pray that this would happen. And in a practical sense, I would encourage you to take some steps as well. If it's your desire to find a spouse, look for someone who you could see yourself being married to, someone you like, a believer, someone uh, who is walking the same path of life with you, and get to know them. Go have a coffee. Second, with the discussion of gender, one of the questions that often comes up has to do with something that is called intersex. It's a common objection when dealing with these things. It's an umbrella term used for those born with conditions causing differences in reproductive or sexual anatomy. The fallen condition has done much to spoil our understanding of gender and sexuality, but it has not obliterated the distinction of sexes. God still makes us as male or female. Intersex makes up about 1% of births, but in most cases, the sex of the baby is not in doubt, though there are abnormalities. And there are conditions where at birth it is difficult or nearly impossible to determine sex based on the genitalia. These account for 0.02% of births. And so despite that being a reality, Scripture resists diluting the male-female binary because some do not fit into it. And to those who experience a painful and confusing biological reality, Jesus gets it. He gets you. Psalm 103 shows that he knows our frame and remembers we are dust. And so this is part of the bodily brokenness from the fall that makes up our experience. Parents in these situations may have to make very difficult decisions. And it's found that it's often best to wait and see how further development takes place. These situations are not the same as gender dysphoria, which I mentioned earlier, which stems from the mind and the emotions. Third, we need to be careful of not going further than the scriptures go in relation to gender, specifically what we call masculinity and femininity. And it took me about four hours of practicing saying femininity. (laughs) It's just not a word that rolls off my tongue. So what does a man or woman behave like? What are the cultural norms? That's the question in sight. What a man or woman should be like varies from culture to culture and from one generation to the next. I've seen lots of posts on social media calling for a return to a time where men were manly or women were more feminine, and I believe this to be harmful. Maybe you're a man who would rather paint than skin a deer. Maybe you're a woman who would rather skin a deer than wear a dress. And even in my example just there, I stereotyped what is masculine and what is feminine. But the reality is there are differences here. 
between men and other men and women and other women, but there are fundamental differences between men and women. The Bible, when discussing what manhood and what womanhood looks like, is more concerned with discipleship and growth in our understanding of the gospel than it is the physical expressions of masculinity or femininity. What scripture reveals to us, what we're seeing here, what scripture says is that we are embodied, we are sexual, and we are to submit to God with what he says about our bodies, with what he says about our gender and their purposes. Our gender and sexuality are good gifts from God, and they can be received within the context of his plan for them. We are designed to complement each other in our distinct differences. And yes, not all good gifts are easy to receive. So what does the gospel say about identity, gender, and sexuality? Well, sin has taken a wrecking ball to the beautiful design of gender and sexuality. That's clear to us, right? Well, it's also obvious in the scripture, looking at Romans 1, 26 to 32. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Sin leads to death. Sexual immorality of all kinds, that is, sexuality outside of God's ways, is sin. Along with gossip, slander, disobedience to parents, foolishness, faithlessness, stealing, being greedy, getting drunk, and swindling people. So don't be a deceptive business person. Sin is where we all start on equal footing. But thank God it says, and such were some of you and I. We don't have to stay in that anymore. We live in a broken world, but the gospel is hope for sexual brokenness. It is good news of how Jesus saves sinners. Jesus takes what we once were and he gives us a new heart, a clean heart, And draws us close. And so perhaps you came here today with some baggage of sexual brokenness. 
Perhaps you're confused in your thinking about your identity. You've heard lots of lies about it and you're just not sure what to think. Jesus died and rose again to forgive your sin and to redeem you, to restore you, to restore your brokenness, to make you whole. And that includes your sexuality. His body was broken for the brokenness that you feel in your body. He experienced utter shame to cover your shame. And so by looking to the one who bore ultimate shame, we can find a way to walk forward from our own. He who knew no sin became sin. The ultimate feeling of being in the wrong flesh. And he does that so that he can heal any dysphoria you might experience. Jesus went to the cross for you. You cannot fix what is broken. But real hope for your body, your gender, and your sexuality are found in Christ, whose body was broken for you. Again, Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is about Jesus. And we know that because in Acts 2, Peter said that this was about Jesus. In his first sermon after Pentecost, Jesus is not just the path to life. Jesus is life. Jesus said this, John fourteen six. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so these counterfeit messages that we encounter, they promise life. They promise purpose and meaning, but they fail every single time. They lead to death. And Jesus is the only way to experience true life both in this life now and the life to come. With him, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. There are pleasures to come that we can't even imagine. We can try. Sometimes that's fun. We should keep in mind, sex is temporary. We will still have our bodies. We will still have the gender we were created with, our biological sex, but we will no longer have the physical act of sex in eternity. And this shows us something. This shows that as good as sex is, it's just a temporary gift. It's not ultimate. It's not an ultimate pleasure. There is a greater pleasure. What has been broken in this world is made whole in the age to come. When Jesus returns, he will right all wrongs. All the brokenness will be undone. How do we apply all of this? What does it mean for our lives? First, I want to encourage you to trust God's good design for you, even if you don't necessarily feel it or understand it fully. Trust that God's way is better and his plan for you is good. Who you are. Soul and body is who God made you to be. Perhaps gender and sexuality have caused suffering in your life. I don't know what the reason for your suffering is. But I do know that it's not because God doesn't love you. I know God loves you because he sent his son to get involved in your suffering. 
to come and be a part and experience our suffering here in this world. As Tim Keller has said, Jesus suffered and so he understands and he loves you. Just look at what he did on the cross. So you can submit your sexuality and your gender to God because his ways are higher and better and because his love for you is real. Second, for those of you with children, these topics are perhaps especially relevant as you try to train your children up in a world of rage. Perhaps you worry about how to train them in God's best for them when you struggle yourself to live in light of God's best. Perhaps you're wondered, you've wondered, what if my child says they're not sure about their gender or about my sexual identity? Let me encourage you with this. First, don't panic. Teach your children the goodness of God, the gospel of grace. Show them how the Bible makes better sense than all the ideas that they've come across. Display in your own life the wonders of the gospel as you depend upon God's grace daily. Live in light of forgiveness. And look to the hope of Christ's return. You don't have to have it all together. Just point them to the one who does. Our children need the power of the gospel to make sense of the fallenness of this world. And so absolutely teach them of God's ways. Teach them of God's purposes in creating them the way that they are. Uh, there are amazing resources for that that you can find uh, to teach them these things. But more than anything, give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the power to live. Third, how should you engage with culture over these things? So scripture doesn't give us a lot of information on what we should do to engage, like the specifics, this is where I should be involved. But it does have a lot to say about how we engage, specifically the posture, the attitude of our engagement. In Mark 6.34, Jesus had gone away with his disciples to desolate places. He wanted a night away. He wanted to go camping, get away. But as he's in the boat, he sees the crowd of people, and it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so we too should engage with compassion and humility. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 12, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they, seek, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And so we engage as those who had once not received mercy, but now we have. As those who were once in darkness ourselves, but now we live in marvelous light. The gospel helps us to engage with kindness and with respect. Peter exhorts us to abstain from the passions of the flesh. And this passions of the flesh, it encompasses a whole lot of things. It encompasses what we've talked about today, sexuality and, and those topics. But it also includes anger. 
So abstain from those passions in, in communicating with those who don't know Christ. You've been freed from those things. They're no longer who you are, as we saw earlier. Such were some of you. So live in the new life that you've been given as freed people and treat others honorably. Of all people, we should understand the extent to which the world is fallen and therefore be able to proclaim Christ to those who are still dead in their sin and to those who are fellow believers who might struggle believing lies at times from a place of gentleness, humility, and grace. So let us not have the attitude of anger or rejection, but in humility and love, let us seek to bring life to those who are hurting. We're first responders with the gospel of grace. We rush in when people rush out. So pray about how God would use you on gospel mission to reach someone struggling even with gender confusion or sexual brokenness. Maybe rather than clobbering them with certain passages, perhaps God would have you just start by being a neighbor, getting to know them, loving them, and maybe pointing them to Psalm 139 that we read last week, that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Or in Genesis 127, that you've been made in the image of God. Then perhaps you can tell them of the great love and forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Some of you may feel called to serve in the sphere of education. And you might do that simply as a parent with a child in school. Get to know the teachers. Be involved in every opportunity that there is. Get to know what is in the curriculum. Get to know these things. Treat the school as your mission field, and you have been sent as a missionary. Whether your child is in public, private, or homeschool, you can find those who need to hear the good news. And I can tell you, as someone who was homeschooled from 4th grade through 12th grade, there's a lot of people who don't know the good news of Jesus Christ in that realm. Perhaps you feel called to serve in the political sphere. This is a tough sphere to affect change in. But not impossible. God can do anything, right? And he might use you. Serve there with humility and grace. Though recognizing that ultimately, politics will not change the heart of a sinner. But you can image God there. Find the spaces in your community in which you can actively engage with those who are not yet Christians. And proclaim Christ to them. Finally, I know you've been waiting for that. Finally. I want to close a little differently than normal as Nate and the team come, come back. I want to leave you with a promise of grace for the undeserving. God has called us, including Grace Life, you and I, to stand out in our generation as a community of hope, in a world of rage. And he is with you in this very way. Gathering together, singing, praying, hearing the word of Christ proclaimed, encouraging and exhorting one another, all serve to disciple and ground us in a world that is broken. It also serves as a witness. Because the most powerful witness of the gospel to the world is the church simply being the church, a community of the redeemed, loving each other and proclaiming Christ. 
the truths of Scripture and the gospel get down deep within us in these ordinary means of grace. And so in a moment, we're going to sing. And I want to encourage you to, as Ray Ortland often says, sing your fool heads off. As you sing, I want you to read the words as they appear on the, the screen. I want you to sing them with your heart. I want you to hear your brothers and sisters around you as they sing as well. Maybe that's hard to do all three, so kind of move from each to each. And as we do this, let's be encouraged in the gospel. And so rather than closing in a typical prayer, why don't you stand up? And this is going to be my prayer for you as we close. And then I want us to sing Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen.